Every week on our regular episodes of Shift Shift Bloom, I get to interview people whose lives are very different from mine. And we talk about how each has navigated the twists and turns inherent in transformation. But I wonder, what's universal about how people change? What are the common threads, the connective tissue? I tend to look at change through the lens of my own experience, for the most part, the artist's life. Lucky for us, my curiosity is shared by the co-creator of Shift Shift Bloom, Dr. John Lyons, luminary and author in the field of clinical psychology and systems change. Who better to help me unpack all the questions that fill my mind when the interviews are over? I'm Kristen Sorelli, and you're listening to Shift Shift Bloom, TCOM Takeaways, my conversation with Dr. John Lyons about a recent interview. Joining me in the TCOM studio today is Dr. John Lyons, and we're going to talk about my interview with Dr. Greg Dyke. And John, I know you have been waiting for this one. You really wanted this one to happen. We weren't sure if it was going to happen, and it did. So so let's jump right in. What, what are your thoughts? Yeah, so I, I'm quite happy that Greg agreed to, uh, to do the interview. I, I uh, met him at the... Uh, farmer's market in Lexington Mm -hmm. and he was uh, this guy of indeterminate age sitting at this tinted table advertising yak jerky and so me being me I I bought some yak jerky because it was different and when you read his little blurb it's uh, it's fairly cool both in terms of being healthy and being more Mm -hmm. eco-friendly and when I was a kid my siblings and I used to joke around and call each other like diseased yaks and that kind of stuff. So <laughs> so the yak has sort of a history for me as, a, as an amusing animal, although very huge, and they look prehistoric, actually. But anyway, so, um, so I started talking to him because I'd go each week, and each week I'd buy some yak jerky, and I just thought to myself, and, and right around that time, we decided to do this podcast, and I'm thinking to myself, this guy's got to have a story. I mean, you're a yak rancher. In Kentucky, there's got to be a story there. So, yeah, I didn't realize that you had sort of an ongoing relationship with him at the farmers market. I thought it was a one-time meeting uh, that just got you kind of curious. But that—that's funny. Now, let me stop. He's not—he's not a one-time guy, right? It's sort of like a process of warming up. So. Yes. That's really, that's reflective of my experience with him in the interview process, too. And you can really also tell where he's starting to warm up at the end of the interview. And then when we get to talking about the yaks, his whole spirit really changes, his whole tone of voice. Um, So that was really interesting. It was was actually one of my observations is actually your interview style changed a bit with his more engineering analytical style, So, which I thought was fascinating. Uh, Oftentimes with the other people, you've had sort of more of a softer kind of way of interviewing. And with with Greg, I think you and he both kind of went at it from a more directed sort of way, which I thought was just fascinating to listen to the how relationships are defined by the dyad and not by each individual in that dyad. So that's, that's inter- that was interesting. Yeah, he had a real different temperament, I thought, than 
some of the other guests. And so I don't think I made a conscious effort to change, but he sort of had that irascible uncle right. <laughs> sort of yeah. uh, personality to him. And so it was definitely a different, it was different for me, too. Um, where do you want to start? What, what well, jumps I had, out? Well, I have like seven different... I'm a little bit worried, Kristen, because I've noticed as I listen to the TCOM takeaways that each week I'm adding more and more kind of things that I noticed. We had <laughs> so five last week. Now you've added on two. Seven, right? So I'm a little bit worried about what that means for the future. But anyway, so I'll, I will try and keep it focused. But there was there were seven things in particular that he said wow. that I had a, a, a comment about, perhaps. Um, and I'm not sure there's any order to them. I have them in the order in which he said them, which mm. may be useful. So I can kind of begin to talk through those things. But he's clearly a smart guy, and he thinks about what he does, and that's that's a, a nice, cool aspect of who he is. So do you want me to just do it linearly, like the interview? Let's do it, unless I cut you off okay. and jump one of your points. Right. But yeah, let's sure. do it in a linear way. So I thought his point about social justice as first a way of thinking before it's a way of doing was a really important point. Mm -hmm. And to think about what that means in terms of helping people embrace social justice, that it's not performative first, it's conceptual, and that we have to kind of help people begin to wrap their heads around that in a way that's uh, inclusive, in a way that's inviting to people who are not already singing in the choir. So I, I just thought that was an important point, that the doing needs to be done per, first within a context of thinking. And he kind of did that from a variety of different perspectives. So clearly it was an issue uh, that he believed in. You know, we're, we're age cohorts. I was yes. sitting there throughout the interview wondering how old he was, because literally when you meet him, you know, good luck guessing, right? He has a very so, youthful voice as well. You know, there's yes, something uh, very vigorous yep. about his voice. Yeah, Yeah. so I, I figured he was at least in his late 40s, and he could be... 80, but uh, I had no idea, right? So um, he's, he's in my age cohort. So, you know, in that kind of the social movement generation was mm -hmm. the start. I mean, so I thought he kind of captured it and carried forward. Uh, it reminded me of uh, the kinds of stuff that uh, uh, I was involved in and so forth. So that was sort of like nice to hear the, you know, boomers are now a label that are used to discriminate, right? So, mm -hmm. and, uh, But there's a range of boomers, and mm -hmm. there's, there's a subset of uh, people in that generation like Greg that are really good people, really committed to the right thing, and have helped set the stage for things that are happening now. And just I think it's just important before people just use a label on a, anybody, let alone a generation, to realize that there's variability there. Yeah, and it's a really big generation, so it's really not fair and not right to categorize everyone who's born between those years as one kind of person. I just wanted to jump in and say that really jumped out at me too. I think I had to check my own preconceived notion a little bit at the door because when you're dealing with someone who has a religious background and he brought that that framework of thinking about social justice into the conversation around seminary, I realized how I didn't expect those two things to go together, which is 
naive and ignorant in a way on my part, but it's really more about my own feelings about the church, how much as soon as I hear church, I get my, my, you know, lapsed Catholic armor on and I don't think there can be anything good coming out of it, you know? And so that, that was a good check-in for me. Like, oh yeah. Uh, you know, he went to the same seminary as Martin Luther King Jr. and big social justice thinkers. Yes. And so I think, unfortunately, and I think a part of it is a reality and a part of it is a uh, media portrayal, uh, religion gets presented in this fundamentalist kind of way, mm-hmm. an absolute, not, I don't even really mean fundamentalist because that's actually a, a set of beliefs, but an absolutist kind of way, you know, my way or the highway and, you know, the anti-trans, uh, anti uh, gay kind of stuff that gets the media attention, but it misses the vast majority of spiritual and religious people that are actually following the teachings of uh, of their their particular religions, mm-hmm. which invariably involve diversity, equity, and inclusion, yeah. right? which are the buzzwords of today. But you know, if you think about what would Jesus do? I mean, he would be in the forefront yep. of diversity, equity, inclusion. Yep. Right? And so I think it's an unfair portrayal of religion uh, because just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you're Christ-like. And, you know, figuring out the distinction between the belief systems and how some people practice them within that belief systems is a tricky thing for us to do. And again, these kind of broad brushstroke labels gets in the way of us understanding the nuances of those things. So I thought that, and I didn't, he didn't strike me as religious at all, actually. He struck me as thoughtfully spiritual. Mm-hmm. Um, and the spirit being more like nature, more like the earth, uh, yeah. more like a, a traditional cultural view of, of religion as mm-hmm. opposed to of a kind of the manufactured ceremonial view of religion that we sometimes see. Mm. Great point. The second thing that I was struck by is the randomness of opportunity and convenience in our lives, right? So mm. he goes through any door, right, which is another point down the road. Um, and maybe I can kind of combine them because I think they're related. You know, mm. that, that philosophy, if you see an open door, maybe you should go through it. Um, I think that's a great philosophy. So um, a frightening philosophy, I'm sure. Um, although it seems like he is sufficiently self-confident and uh, yes. that he doesn't struggle with that uh, and he doesn't do second thoughts particularly. So, um, you know, no regrets. Um, so I think that, but the, the reality of the opportunity and convenience, you know, in terms of how that sort of directs the random walk that we all take through our lives. What yeah. do you mean by convenience? We know what randomness is, but in, in this case, what do you mean by convenience? Well, remember he picked his seminary because it's the one within a hundred miles, the only one within a hundred miles, right? Yeah. That's convenience, yeah. right? It's, mm. it's easier to do that than do something else. Mm. So, so that's what I mean. It's easier to do something that's in your neighborhood than it is to do something in somebody else's neighborhood. So convenience definitely factors into our decision-making. So, but so does opportunity. Yeah. That, that's interesting. I wonder how many times we make really big decisions and we lean towards convenience just because logistically, 
when you start to factor in all of the other things that are inconvenient, you're probably apt to not go that way. Yeah, we may reframe it as the path of least resistance yes. or some other kind of uh, positive framing, because sometimes convenience is seen as a slack-ass kind of approach to, to living. But I think it's really fundamental. I suspect a lot of what we decide, a lot of how we, the pathways we choose do have, have to do with convenience, have to do with what's the easier path. Um, you know, life is hard enough as it is without choosing, you know, to make it more difficult for yourself by making yourself inconvenient. Now, we really haven't actually talked to anybody who purposely inconvenienced themselves for the experience of change to make it harder. Right? Mm. No, at least I haven't I don't heard think that so. yet. Yeah. I'm sure there are people that do that. I think I know some people who have done that, but you know, those are the people who like to do the survivalist kind of they'd be on Survivor or on the alone in the woods. You know, I did hear an interview with a guy who who won the alone contest, you know. And he said, you know, you better be comfortable with yourself if you're gonna be sitting in the wilderness by yourself for a months. With nobody else there, right? So there is that kind of person who likes to challenge themselves. But I think most of us, we get enough challenge just by trying to keep our feet moving in front of us or beneath us. So, yeah. And he points out this is related to what you're talking about that some opportunities, random and or convenient or both or neither, you also have to weigh who's going with you through that door. And so at some earlier points in his life, he had more responsibilities with growing children and a marriage. And when he was divorced, it was just him. So maybe you can even be a little bit more likely to take an inconvenient choice or make take a risk when there aren't other people counting on you. Or it redefines the nature of convenience, right? Mm-hmm. It changes the parameters by which you judge convenience. Yes. So, I mean, my career in, time, in part is defined by staying in Chicago after I did my graduate studies because it was convenient. So, could have gone somewhere else, but I stay, and I actually looked to go someplace else, but it was convenient at the time to choose to stay there. So. Well, John, as we know, too, moving <laughs> is the ultimate in inconvenience. I mean, oh, having yes, to is. pack up and get your shiz somewhere else and unpack it when you get there, unless you are a complete minimalist, is one of the most hugely inconvenient things in life. Yes, that is. We both know that mm-hmm. from recent experiences. Yes. <laughs> you more than me. So. What's number three? Okay, well, we already talked about that sort of, because that's when the door is open, walk through it. So mm-hmm. I think that's... You know, that taking opportunities when they present themselves, which is a combination of, of, uh, of uh, randomness and convenience, mm-hmm. um, I think, and privilege, probably. So that's probably where we need to think through how do you create doors for people that don't see them and, or don't actually have them yes. that conveniently identified for them. So I think that's important. But the spirit of that is just so, so I don't know, cool. So profoundly, I think, important uh, for our, you know, experiencing the adventure of living. But if you see an opportunity to take it. It's, uh, it's really about risk-taking, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Although he didn't, 
really think he and I, I I'm wondering about this I, what I was thinking about is listening to him is he didn't seem to weigh his decision like in uh, risk benefit analysis you know no. even though he is an analyst he just was confident enough you know it's funny because he, he made that statement about this woman who was smarter than him which whenever I hear somebody say that I know that they believe themselves to be pretty smart right because if you're not smart in the first place you're not going to be impressed by somebody who's smarter than you right so mm. you're not going to say that as something impressive so he's he is smart and he knows he's smart and I think that gives him some confidence that is uh, really really powerfully important for him and he owns his truth I mean he seems like he's a, extremely authentic in how he thinks about his living yeah, I would agree. His confidence really stands out to me, and that that does seem to play a role in. Maybe it doesn't even feel like a risk when you have that much confidence. You know, you you it's confidence and it's faith. I do find that now. I'm going to do the exact opposite of what I said we shouldn't do at the beginning, which is to say, I do find that boomer men <laughs> tend to be extremely confident. And self-assured and, you know, they. I think they back up their, their decisions and their thoughts with research and knowledge. Uh, but I do find that to be a quality that seems to have permeated the generation. the generation. That's interesting. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I don't so know either. What is your take? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, would, I, would, uh, I would own that characteristic. I have, no one's ever accused me of not believing in myself, right? I do. Mm -hmm. I would agree. I do know some of my colleagues. No, actually, I think you might be on to something that's a part of gender expression during that generation. Because the folks that I know that present themselves as less confident are actually female. Mm. But they have the same skill sets as I do. But it's like they don't seem to feel like they have the permission to present themselves in this kind of confident way that somebody like our tigress Cynthia would present herself, right? Which is the next generation after the boomers. Yeah. Well, it that's interesting to think about what doors were not open for women at that time, even though it was the world right. was changing right. and many doors were opening, but to it, it would be a different experience to be a man and a woman in in that generation, as in all generations. Yeah, it opens that whole question of who decides that there's doors that are there and available and recognizing them and when do you have to barge through them and push them open and when are they inviting you through, right? So those are all complicated kind of questions that are likely embedded in our concepts of privilege. And But it's also random, you know, just literally random. So it's just like this happened and there was this person and I said... Oh, nice to meet you, and boom. Sort of like the fact that Greg is a part of this podcast, yes. right? I mean, it's random, but it was a door that presented itself. And yes. I'm a little bit surprised he agreed to tell his story because he is a little bit more reserved. So I'm, I'm happy that he is because that's an important thing. Yeah, the first thing when I did the pre-interview with him, we just talked on the phone for about 15 minutes. He said, are you sure you want to interview me? You know, he, did, he didn't really think what he would have to share would be, I don't know, of value or exciting. I think he doesn't really look back and think this is an exciting story, but I thought I convinced him otherwise. Um, 
Well, actually, that brings up my next point. I'm mm -hmm. not surprised he said that because he said something that made me very nostalgic. And I, mm -hmm. I think this must be our, our generational uh, podcast for generational concepts of change because he said, do it, but don't say anything about it. So that speaks to my generation. That speaks to how I was raised is, is you don't blow your own horn, right? Yeah. You just simply don't. I can't tell you the number of times my mother said, stop doing anything where you're bragging about yourself. You want other people to brag about you, not mm. you brag about yourself. So, you, and because I was always a little bit cocky, perhaps. I, okay. mean, I don't know. But yeah, so, so she was always on me about that issue. You know, do it, but don't say anything about it. Wait for somebody else to recognize it. And now we see in our current world, it's not about doing it. It's about posting it before you do it on Facebook. And then once you do it, tweet it and get a picture of it and post that on Instagram. And it's created this culture where I worry that it's no longer about doing it. It's about saying that you're doing it. It's a yeah. performance art kind of way of living as opposed to actually doing it. And now I think that's probably an unfair portrayal of the social media generation because I suspect there's a large number of people who just do it and don't say anything that actually were raised in ways that are very similar. But it does feel like sometimes that if you don't, if it doesn't appear on social media, it doesn't actually exist. And okay, but wow, I mean, that's, it changes the values. And you kind of see even how that has influenced our politics. Mm -hmm. You know, when Madison Cathorn came to Congress, he didn't want to hire any policy staff. He only wanted to hire communication staff. Wow. So, which means his view of legislating is communicating to his constituencies or whomever he's communicating to, right? So that's a very different lens to think about leadership than I'm going to go to Congress and get some policy work done. I'm going to go to Congress and communicate about this, right? And so maybe that's good, maybe that's not, uh, but figuring out how to make it good, I think is probably going to be an important generational challenge. Yeah, I think I think the social media aspect of everything has has benefits and also has complicated mm -hmm. things in many yes. ways. And I'm thinking about even even your remark about your mom saying, you know, pipe down, let other people do the uh, praising. It's that is very different, you know, in the late boomer parents and the Gen X parents, they are tooting the horns of their children relentlessly Absolutely. online. Absolutely. And, you know, to the point where you kind of sometimes want to say, give it a rest, take a day off. Yeah, that, my parents would not be doing that. Although later in life, you know, my mother would write me letters, Dr. John Lyons. <laughs> like, she's you're the only person that calls me that. <laughs> That's very sweet. Well, I noticed, though, that Greg, and I didn't ask, in fairness, I didn't ask a lot of questions, but Greg hardly talked about his children. You know, he didn't right. really, he kept the conversation to his professional yeah. achievements and his the beliefs that were guiding those changes in his professional life. Yeah. Which I think makes a lot of sense because they're not on the podcast, right? They can't explain themselves, right? Yeah. So, you know, it's fair to not pull them into the whole story. 
Tell me what number we're at and what and what. That okay, point let's see. Is. That's now we're ready for five, <laughs> which I think is something that actually almost everybody has said, but in different ways. Okay. And that is knowing what's important to you mm-hmm. as a really important piece of change, is that you're not really going to change in any way unless you view it as important to you. And if you don't really know or you can't articulate what is important to you, then you really can't, therefore, change effectively because you don't know that what you're doing is important to you. So that, you know, knowing yourself and knowing what's important to you seems to me like a universal precursor of change Mm -hmm. that everybody we've talked to has had in some ways talked about that, you know, mission, vision, philosophy, values, whatever labels that they might put on it, it involves knowing who their, what their heart is, knowing who they are, knowing what they want in their life as being an important part of deciding what to do next. Yeah. I don't know if we give people, I want to say kids, but, you know, kids, teens, young adults, I don't know if we give people time or or education in discerning their values. Maybe if you maybe if you go to a religious-based school, if you have a religious-based education, you talk about values maybe from that perspective, from that lens. But I'm thinking like in my public school education, sure, what subjects do you like? Sure, what, you know, what are you thinking about doing with your life? But not a lot of unpacking of what do you value? What's important to you? And I think we only come to those crossroads in life when something is dissonant and we have to then figure out why it's dissonant. And it usually leads to that conversation about maybe you're living in a way that's out of alignment with your values. And at that moment you think, well, what are even my values? I know what my family values. I know what my culture values, but do I know what I as an individual really value? And And I imagine that's getting harder for younger people to discern also because there's so much ingesting of cultural values. Yes, and we have a bad habit of telling everybody what their values are supposed to be. Mm -hmm. Right? I mean, that's kind of what almost everybody does, actually, is we tell people, these are these are my values, therefore they need to be yours. Right? So there's that kind of built-in sort of indoctrination of who you are, who you should be, um, depending on, but it, it varies by context, you know, by culture, by religion, by community. Uh, but it's all pretty much the same, that you do get sort of indoctrinated into what you're supposed to. But I think when you listen to actually all of our people who talk, they're always talking about how they adjusted who they were who they thought they were, what was important to them in their own journey, independent to some extent mm-hmm. of their what they were told, you know, what they were first taught to that they should believe in. So I think regardless of how much time we spend indoctrinating people into their values, they're gonna have their own journey and they're gonna mm-hmm. decide for themselves who they are. And I I agree with you that we don't spend enough time helping young people figure that out on their own because they have to figure it out on their own. They can't just read a book or they can't just be told this is what you should be, this is who you should be. They have to figure that out on their own and they need to be able to articulate it. 
Yeah, and I think as you're talking, I'm thinking about Greg's story and what we call what you've given us the framework about randomness and convenience. And he's he kept feeding in that metaphor about walking through the open door. But I think not to be too metaphysical on you, but this idea that his vibration was really strong about what he wanted to do really from what place he wanted to operate in life. And so I think he met doors opening in those domains because he was really, he he had assuredness about those values. And so he kept meeting opportunities to play out his participation in those values and in being able to make changes based on those values. Whereas if you're wishy-washy and you don't know and you haven't given it any thought, you're you're probably not going to meet up with anything particularly, you know, that sets you on fire because you're not on right. fire about anything or you don't know what it is that you're on fire about. Right. And that's the people who can't really decide what they want to do with their life, right? So... Um, it's always better, Kristen, for you to get metaphysical on me than getting <laughs> me- medi- medieval on me. So that's fine. It's okay to get it's well, okay to get metaphysical. So I, he's got you know I'm, I've met him in person, of course, several yes. times, and he has a vibe. He does. I mean, I'm not a. I don't really talk in those terms typically, but he does have this energy that you can feel when you meet him. Right? Mm-hmm. It's a, you could call it charisma. You could call it a vibe. You could call it energy. I don't know why, but it's real. I mean, you can feel it mm-hmm. with him. And so that's what sort of, I think, attracted me to talk to him. It's like, oh, this guy has something about him that's interesting that kind of draws you in. And I suspect that is a part of his secret, you know, superpowers, right? That is, he has that. And I suspect when he's working in New Orleans, that was invaluable. I and mean, when he's working in the ER and he's working, you know, and when he went to India and when he even when he was an engineer, that, that that kind of positive energy, vibration, whatever, is really important, powerful, and useful. Yeah, you can even get it over a, f- a phone call. So he, it might be generational, we didn't see each other on the computer screen as you and I are seeing now because we there were some technical difficulties. and And so both times we just met with an oral and audio connection and it still comes across and is perhaps sort of the reason why my feedback loop with him my my way of dealing with him was different because he was different he he's got a different energy I think you would I think you're right on it when you say energy than some of the other folks not better just different just different yeah yeah sort of a sort of a like the difference between uh, a high intensity electric wire versus something else. Like there's something about him that has that kind of vibrating tension to that energy that's like wow. Yeah, and it's it's really strong. You can't strong. not feel it. It's it's just right. it's the strength of that that current. You're like yes. you got to get on it. You get on his right. current with him in a way. All right, so the next point okay. is his comment about workaholism, you know, workaholics which I think is another label that is problematic. Now, that's sort of gone away. That's generational, and I will admit to being labeled uh, more than once in my my life as a workaholic. Mm -hmm. Um, The language has evolved, so typically it's more recently, you know, life-work balance. Um, 
I like the concept of life-work harmony, which I think mm. that's a more meaningful. I think mm. workaholic and life-work balance is created to, I think it's resulting to trying to shame people mm. who like to work and get their meaning from their work and to saying, you shouldn't do it. You know, you're union busting, you're working too much and I'm not working that hard and you're getting meaning from your work and I don't get meaning from my work so I want you to take yoga classes instead or learn to play the cello or whatever. Um, which I call BS. So I think people should do what they like to do. Mm-hmm. And if people like to do work, and that's what gives them meaning in their lives, then who are we to tell them that that's somehow a pathology? So I, I, was, it's, I think if he had pulled that thread, he would have landed on the same place because he kind of you know, he said, well, I'm not a workaholic. Mm-hmm. I'm a, so, But I like to work. I mean, so he spends probably a lot of time working. So what is a workaholic? It's trying to make work into an addiction that has to be treated with detox and other kinds of stuff. And I think that's a really, really, really sad way of representing what most of us spend a significant amount of time in our lives doing. And if your work doesn't make you happy, it's not fundamentally your work's fault. You need to find work that actually makes you happy because if you're not getting meaning from what you're doing, then you need what life-work balance so you can find meaning outside what you're doing. But if you're getting your meaning from what you're doing, what's the what's the issue? You know. Ooh, this is a big topic. This one hits me because I I would say I, I don't call myself a workaholic, but I'm I'm strung to work. Yeah, because it's what gives you meaning, right? It's yeah. what gives you pleasure, right? So and so what's what's why does that have to be framed as some sort of well, originally as a like a psychiatric disorder, uh, and then more recently as like a a failure to achieve the yin and yang of life or some such thing. Um, yeah, but life work th- harmony. As long as everything's harmonious in your life, because that, that to me seems like the concept that works well, and it's not judgmental. It's not pejorative to people who find their meaning from their profession. Yeah. And then the yeah. last point, the last thing that stuck out to me. Uh, in some ways might be the most important, uh, particularly for our, our likely listeners. And that's the power of helping. So he, he made a point about that, mm-hmm. and he actually talked about it um, from a, def- a couple of different perspectives. But I think that point is really profoundly important. And this is particularly important when you have people who have challenges in their life. And they spend their lives being helped, and they're not given any opportunity to help others. And that's a life sentence to meaninglessness, to be a recipient of health, help wow. your entire life prevents you from experiencing the power of helping others. And so, for instance, in our adult version of our mental health tools, we have a strength called volunteering. Because the way we've set things up for people with serious mental illness is they get a disability check, and then it becomes very, very hard to get off disability, because if you get off disability, you're probably not making enough money uh, to make ends meet, and so you're better off uh, agreeing to live a life of poverty on disability than take the chance of shifting to the workforce where it's a little bit more 
iffy and nothing is promised. Uh, but so you sit around, you're actually paid a small amount of money to do nothing. So you miss that part of the meaning of life. And if you don't have other ways of finding meaning, then that's just tragic. And so how you, do you help people if they can't work because they can't get paid, they can still volunteer. They can give back because it's in the giving back mm. is often, just like teaching is more powerful than taking a, teaching a class. You learn way more than taking a class. Helping others, you actually get more out of than being helped. And if we deny some people from the opportunity to help others, that's just denying them a significant source of power and meaning in their lives. So I, I was struck by that. And I, it, it hits home for me in one of the things that we try to do within the TCOM space, which is turn the tables and people who have challenges are not commodities of the system that we just have to pour services on. They're people and they're people with aspirations and they're people with strengths and they're people who can have meaningful lives and we need to figure out ways to help them find their meaning and achieve that. And so I was really struck by that particular observation that Greg made because I think it is profoundly important for our work. Yeah, he kind of his offerings on that topic, whether it was um, bringing up the concept of downward mobility or just talking about um, different service projects, got me really set off on reading and researching. And it, it was really compelling to go follow those trails that he had sort of sprinkled out and just see sort of how what you're talking about, too, is, is an ancient mm -hmm. truth that helping is hugely meaningful in our lives and it everyone should have the opportunity to offer what they have yes. to someone That's else. That's absolutely right. So and I think figuring out how to make that work is a challenge in our current uh, system structure. But it's not a it's not an impossible challenge. I mean we it's interesting to me because we have so in public so most of our work is in either public behavioral health or in child welfare or in the justice system or so forth. So we have a large number of people, I mean, literally tens of millions of people that have decided as a career choice to take career paths in which they're never really going to get paid anything remotely close to people who take a path down the business, the, dare I say, the more capitalistic kind of part of our economy. Mm -hmm. And there's a major split uh, my experience, and now that I'm old, I have lots of friends that took one path or the other. And I have friends who took either path. The friends of mine who took the path to help at the sacrifice of money are far richer in their hearts today than those who have a boatload of money. So now my friends with a boatload of money are looking to give it away so that they can help. Right. Okay. That's fair. So maybe that's the cycle of how this all is designed to work. I got to ask, how was the yak jerky? Yak jerky is delicious. <laughs> I love it. I love that yak jerky. I was sad when, when the um, farmer's market closed for the winter. Mm -hmm. um, so, and he only, he only slaughters a certain number of yaks. So you have to get it while it's there, but it's, it's much, much leaner. So the other thing that he didn't talk about 
So you spent no time, which is probably a good thing. So I'm going to break that, sadly. You spoke no, you didn't speak about yak farting. But <laughs> yak farting is important because that's why yaks are more eco-friendly than cattle because there's less methane that are released from the yak than there is from cattle. Yeah, so yak farting is actually the reason why yak ranching might actually be better for the environment. But the meat, I mean, it tastes a lot like beef. Yeah. It's leaner. It's leaner, but it's quite tasty. Um, Now, I didn't, like, bite into the side of a yak, so I didn't have yak sushi, you know, or something like that, so I don't really know exactly. It was, you know, prepared. It was prepared. I think I had the regular and the teriyaki, um, so... Teriyaki yak tastes like teriyaki, right? So, yeah. so, but the meat itself is is uh, pretty pretty uh, flavorful, and it's very lean. It, it, you don't get that same kind of t- taste of fat. So, I would recommend it. I tried. So, I buy my uh, my group teases me endlessly about the yak jerky because I would bring it and I'd give it away. But they all are now looking to get it once he comes back this uh, see this you, uh, this season. You so. started a, a a trend. Now I think what we should do is have a field trip so we can have a supplementary video for I this episode so. that we need to get to Zebashinga Yak Ranch. I want to see you. Kentucky. Up next to a yak. I bet you do. You're kind of tiny, and those listeners, things are really that's right. huge. <laughs> they are enormous. They look enormous. So, um, right. I you would may love not to. even come up to their leg. I mean, you may not come up to their. To, you may. I mean, I don't know. I haven't. I haven't seen one in person, but they are really big animals. I guess we'll have to. We'll we'll have to go. We'll have to plan a trip and get right. some Sounds get good. some video. I know. I talked to Greg, and he said I could come anytime. I, was, I told him I might bring a. A UK contingent out, so okay, and a, and a camera crew. Yeah, I'm just thinking, you know, we could we could wrap up right now, but there's something that's sort of floating in the air with me, which is that hopefully not a yak fart. <laughs> <laughs> Touche. Um, it would be a, it would be a dog fart around here. <laughs> okay, um, right. okay. Studio dog is not present right now, but it seems significant to me. And this will air very soon, soon enough, um, that this episode, which really speaks a lot into walking through doors and doors being open, this episode is happening as we've finally gotten the first black woman on the Supreme Court. And so I just wonder if you have any thoughts about that, parting thoughts. Well, I think that's a, a wonderful and way overdue breakthrough. And, and Judge Jackson seems like the perfect choice to be the uh, person to crash that glass ceiling. Um, it's tragic to me that there's so much partisan resistance to this, but that seems to what this all is our sad political state of affairs has become of posturing into a creating quite literally a black and white society it's either you're either this group or you're that group and if you're it reminds me of the dr seuss books frankly of you know the star on the belly are not kind of nonsense right and it's like what the i mean mm-hmm. don't we have some commonality mm-hmm. uh, don't we have things in common don't we have some shared values aren't we all like maybe americans um but it's gotten so 
ridiculous that, you know, no, I disagree with somebody, so therefore I'm not actually an American. I'm a something else, right? Or, or you're ignorant because you have these belief systems. And so we've stopped kind of talking to each other and stopped kind of understanding each other. And we just get into this virtue signaling uh, on both sides, right? The different virtues, but the same kind of virtue signaling constantly going on that doesn't involve any real dialogue. And uh, I just think, you know, the more we can figure out how we can recognize those things we have in common and stop making absolutely every freaking thing about me or you, my side, your side, you know, if I've got a star in my belly, you don't, I think we'll be in a better place. But I'm not optimistic for any time soon uh, to get to that place because it always blows me away, the number of people who prefer to have this stance of I'm right and you're wrong. What do you think? So, oh, I think, I think part of it comes back to this idea that we ingest a lot of information and we like to stick our stake in the ground about things when we haven't really reflected on our own individual values and really unpacked issues from that point of view. And I think that's what those three Republican senators may have done is actually thought about their own values and the values of their constituents and see that they don't, they're not out of alignment with this nominee, you know, this person. Yep. I think you're right. I mean, because it is almost brain dead to just say, I'm going to follow whatever my boss tells me to do, right? And so that's sort of what everybody seems to be doing at the moment. You know, I'm not going to think for myself. I'm just going to do what I'm told So because we all have to operate as a block because there's these powers and numbers kind of stuff. Yeah, and that seems to take it back into our world and our podcast and what we hope to be highlighting. That seems, that kind of thinking and acting from that place seems to be the enemy of change. Yeah, it actually prevents change. So I think that's how the Senate is actually designed at the moment. Is And in fact, uh, if and when the, the Republicans take control over it, it will guarantee that nothing happens, mm-hmm. right? Literally nothing happens, and that will be the, the policy perspective. So yeah, I mean, this kind of intransigent um, partisanship is an enemy of change. Mm-hmm. And collaborative, nonpartisan working together towards the common interest of the people who live in this country is how change can happen at that level. But regardless, they're all tools, right? We can decide what to do regardless of what those people are choosing to do. We uh, each have agency in our own lives, and we don't need to get too sucked up into their posturing one way or the other, either side of the aisle. We don't have to get sucked into it. We can still go about our lives and live the lives that we believe are the right lives to live and just not worry about it. Yeah, and I think I think Greg's story really gets is at the that's at the heart of Greg's yes, story. That is at the heart of Greg's right story. Do the right thing regardless. Just do the right thing regardless and don't be shouting about it. And don't be doing it because you think somebody wants you to do it, right? Just yeah. do it because you think it's the right thing. Yeah, yeah. I think that would probably be the essence of his story. Well, it's always great to talk to you. I wish you a weekend free of yak farting. <laughs> <laughs> I think I will be free. So. And I'll, I'll talk to you next time. All right. It's good to talk to you. Take care. 
Shift Shift Bloom is a co-production of TCOM Studios and Actually Quite Nice, engineered by Tim Fall, and hosted by me, Kristen Sorelli. Episodes are available wherever you download your podcasts and are made possible by listeners just like you. Please consider supporting our work by visiting us at patreon.com forward slash shift shift bloom. Shift Shift Bloom is made possible in part by the Prade Foundation, a nonprofit organization committed to improving the well-being of all through the use of personalized, timely interventions and provider of online training in the TCOM tools. TCOM is Transformational Collaborative Outcomes Management, a comprehensive framework for improving the effectiveness of helping systems through person-centered care. Online at PradeFoundation.org and at TCOMConversations.org and by the Center for Innovation and Population Health at the University of Kentucky. Online at iph.uky.edu.